Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Hey, just before we get started, this is a conspiracy, paranormal, and true crime podcast. The nature of this podcast is gory, unsettling, and definitely vulgar. And we curse a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. So be advised. But we're just two idiots with a mic. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan, and this is Epi 122. 122. Do you remember when we took away the yo, yo, yo for a bit? Yeah. <sighs> yo, 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 and welcome back. What did we say? Hey, and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. Hey. <laughs> yeah, hey. we are trying to be more professional, and then we were like, oh, wait, screw that. Screw that, because we're just not. That's not fun at all. No, and that pisses some of y'all off. Oh my god, we got so many complaints. So many complaints. Either way, today is a fun day because we're recording on a Monday morning, so we, we have coffee. Love morning recordings. I love, love, love Monday recordings, especially when they're not on the weekend Monday recordings or yeah. Monday recordings. Yeah, morning Sunday, recordings. Mor- Sunday morning. Hello? Sunday morning recordings are sucky. They sucked, <laughs> but they were like great because we got them done in the morning, you yeah. know. But they would just be better if we could do them during the week. So we love, we love these moments. Yeah, we live for these Faux moments. Show, but. Um, uh, we have had a very interesting last few days. Yeah, we really have. Um, it's oh, been fun. I worked this weekend. Yeah. But that's why I have today off, by the way. But um, today, I'm so excited, guys. We are going to look at a wedding venue, and I'm pretty sure it's the one. Yes. So we're just double checking, you know, in person, and then maybe put our deposit down and save the date. It is so gorgeous. I hope this is the one you choose. I know. If not, we get the Reed House I Hotel. I hope it's the one that you choose. It's the only one that I'm looking at. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it so much. I have a few friends that, um, yeah, from home that got married there, and the the wet the 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 hello the versatility of this place is just yeah. so phenomenal you can make it whatever you want it but to. i'm realizing that time is crunching i've done my dicking around and i need to ask bridesmaids it's i time. need to we got to plan a batch plan a batch i need to uh set the date <laughs> yeah we we've got to get some stuff pumped out you know we're like kind of nearing the one year mark so yeah, we really are it's just been a lot of fun though so tell them about your weekend okay um miss joanna <laughs> Games. I have a new HGTV t- show. Apparently. A new HGTV show. A TV show. Um, and <laughs> I. Okay. Let Let's start off. What induced this? So you guys know we've been doing polls. We've been doing the twenty two day challenge, which has kind of fallen off and on, but we're still like holding ourselves to that standard. So that's good. Um, yeah. It's just there to you know motivate us and it it kind of induced a panic breakdown, uh, a mental. A full-blown yeah. mental anxiety panic attack 
it, it was bad of, i need to change the entire house yeah i was like something's got to give and it's got to be the house because that's the only thing that we can change so i decided that i was going to t- this happened on wednesday night last week yeah. and uh i guess it was right after we recorded the vatican girl it it just really like sent me i guess just the pressure of getting that out overnight and so we decided that uh after working on thursday because we were going to record and then we decided like we need a break we need a mental break so we took off thursday and i only worked a little bit on the evening of thursday and friday i took off saturday i took off i worked yesterday on sunday but we decided that we were going to do this monday morning so whatever and I decided, okay, well, if I have Friday and Saturday, how about I flip my entire house? And that's exactly what I did. I went and bought an electric sander and I sanded down this dresser that we have. Mind you, she's like, hey, do you know if anyone has an electric sander? I'm like, no, I don't think so. She's like, you're right. I'll just hand sand. And I'm like, no, it's a great investment. Like, yeah. we'll definitely be using we'll it. Go use buy it. an electric one. Go get one. Well, I, I started off you. by hand sanding and it took me two hours to get one drawer done and i was like okay yeah we're done um that's enough and i didn't actually mind it because i i enjoy like you know that was like kind of therapeutic to be able to go out there and like not have i was outside it felt good whatever i spray painted a bunch of shit i went to target and you know just racked up a bill and (laughs) did my favorite thing you know swiping a card and I came back and I I mainly use things that I have in the house because if you don't know this about me I collect random pieces of furniture for no reason like if something's on the Facebook marketplace and it's five dollars I can go get it because people like I just want it gone if you come pick it up it's free and I'll go get it and so I'll use it around my house and I've been hating because I've collected so many pieces that it's kind of turned my house into like um every wall has something on it and that bothered me it made me feel like I was in a prison so I was like I've got to fix this and my house needs to be a little bit more open and able to breathe because not only do I work from home but so does Logan so we both work from home we're in this house all day long every single day and it just isn't it it gets like repetitive and there's never like a separate break from it so we just decided to give the house like a little bit of a zhuzh to help it out just a little lift so the majority of it i used things here and just uh spray painted and changed things out like in photo frames but i separated my sectional turned it into like two separate couches that face each other in our living room so that way we could get the double window to get a lot more natural light Mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with it and i'll post some pictures for everybody to see because i'm obsessed and then i diy'd the hell out of some like wall lights like um what are those called we've had this conversation yeah but scones 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 god when did we do this we recently did this wall scones okay i don't know what they're called you know like the hanging lights that go on either side of like you know things that like lanterns they look like either way while morgan looks up the proper name for it or how to pronounce it we did sconces sconces something like that yeah so we did um sconce maybe sconce i don't know you guys know what we're saying either way i was like oh i really want some of those lights right so i went to the store and i was looking for some and they were all just like ungodly price they made no sense so i was like let me go get some desk lamps that look exactly like these that i want and i drilled holes on the side of them and hung them on the wall to be hanging lights and i love them they're on either side of my little picture wall i took the 
hinges and doors off of a cabinet that I had and turned it into like a mini bookshelf and like layered some gallery photos on it. I took my big mirror and put it in the living room directly across from the mirror. Yes, I mean from the window. I know it's a portal. I know but it's a portal. But that's all the fun in it. But like I needed it. <laughs> I needed another portal in this house. So I did that and then I fixed the bedroom up a bit and made Logan like a little tropical wall, like an, an atrium. vibe. Yeah, it's got all of our plants um, in there, like our aloe and our West Palm, or West Palm, Magic Palm, Majestic Palm in there with like a bunch of these paintings um, that his great grandmother passed down to him of their home in Jamaica and everything. So I hung those up on the wall. I got this like cute little wicker Is there lamp fish shade. In the fish tank? There's uh, a ton of crabs, snails, and shrimp. I was, I was wondering if I couldn't remember if I saw a new fish or not. No, not we haven't invested in a new fish. Okay. We're, Logan won't get another fish until we get a bigger fish tank. Fair. Um, and thank God. So Fair. I don't know if we told them that they died. Did, they, did we yeah, tell we them? Yeah, we told them. Oh, yeah. The yeah, fish, the fish bit the dust. They froze to death. Um, it was really tragic, really sad. It was really awful, but yeah, that happened. That was my weekend, and now I'm about to redo all of Morgan's house. Yeah, so then on Sunday, I get a text um, during work. I mean, it was just so worth it, Morgan. Just send me every wall in your apartment, mm-hmm. um, and I will just map oh, yeah. it out. On we use Canva, Canva, and we can get this done for five hundred. Anything yeah. that she says, anything you need sanded, let me know. Let me know. And I was like, I mean, so currently we actually have Logan's old college apartment TV stand. Yes, and it's like super low, and I do love it. It's just a little too low, so I would need to get new legs on it. Mm-hmm. So I immediately texted back. I said, Yeah, Logan's TV stand. You can redo that. Yeah, refurbish that. So we we have an idea. I don't know necessarily know if I'll paint it though. I could keep the black and just change the drawers. I think you do what you sent me on TikTok, and we and just get, get those gold peel legs. and stick ones. Oh yeah, not even gold legs. You could get some like awesome. I just need because the legs on there are like little stumps. Yeah, and you I just need, need long something ones. just a little longer. We need to just go down to that antique uh, furniture thing because you can break those apart and they'll give you like yeah. the pieces. We just got to see what the measurements yeah, are. Yeah. So are. she sends me a text. I'm like, yeah, for sure. So I left work and I go get some sushi and then I lay on the couch. And then four hours goes by and I wake up and I'm like, I was supposed to send her pictures. But I wake up to 18 texts that are like, okay, here's your entire apartment. I could, I could remember like, what it looked like. The window, the closet. Like she had it down to a key, like a yeah. literal like spot on. It was awesome. Yeah, so it was sick. So we're going to start that. We're going to do Morgan's. And Did you vlog this weekend? No, I didn't. You should have. I, I, I know I should have. And I thought about it. But then I was like, you know what? Since I'm taking a break, I have got to take the break. The real break. So yeah. like me worrying about the vlog would just add more pressure to it and so I decided not to so I took before and after photos for you guys yeah yeah it was it was a big moment for TT over here yeah she had a really good weekend yeah I'm really happy for her it feels good real break the only thing that I've got to do next is this my office the studio yeah because this is where I spend a lot of time and we've got to we've got another thing in mind that we want to do for it but first we've got to just I wanted to get the house done because this one can be done very quickly it's just one room versus an entire house yeah Uh, but we're not doing too big of a change no 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 but um, we do have to discuss the Vatican episode. Yes. We had a lot of really good feedback that a lot of people really I was loved shocked episode. about. Yeah. Um, and if you know, then you know that it took us months or not a month, but about, it about did a take month, us a month to get this shit together. Mm-hmm. And then we had issue after issue with recording it and it kept getting pushed back and we were really running late and it was unedited. It was raw. 
It was. We couldn't get the microphone levels to be normal. Right. It was definitely a season one kind of vibe with right. season three research. We were really nervous about how you guys would be able to handle the quality of it. And obviously, like when things get really frustrating when you're recording something, you can hear it in our voices. So, you know, especially with pronunciations, which we pronounce that word wrong too when using a lot of foreign language and having to focus on that too like that becomes a lot for us and we get overwhelmed and you can kind of hear in our voice especially in the beginning we kind of got on a roll in the halfway mark which was good for us but the beginning of it was kind of rough in my opinion I would say it took us eight hours to record that yeah eight hours to record that entire episode we were nervous about it so when we put it out we were so excited to hear all of you guys loving it and being like this is my favorite episode that you guys have ever done sending it to my friends because we knew that our research for this case was good because we worked on it for so long and we were really proud of it it's just i hate that the delivery got skewed in it and we only got a little bit of questions or I don't even want to say backlash because it wasn't hateful it was just a lot of people questioning some of our opinions on things which is fair enough because obviously there are opinions so you can question that because we're putting this on a microphone for you guys to listen to but specifically people feeling a little bit offended of the way that we spoke of the Vatican and in terms of their Catholicism and their religious beliefs. So we wanted to come on and say, first and foremost, we did not mean to be offensive in any way, shape, or form towards your religion or anyone's religion, which is something that we never intend to do in any capacity. Where our opinions stand on what happened with the Vatican, not the Vatican as a whole, but the people that were in the Vatican at the time Involved involved in this. And it's Clearly, it's public record that there was involvement involvement by From these officials. religious officials. Yeah. That is who we have issue with. And that is where all of our opinions stemmed from, not from people that are Catholic. Um, And I don't want to be like, you know, we can't be offensive to Catholics because our boys are Catholic. We don't want to be like that. But that is the truth. Like we both of our husbands were raised Catholic. I mean, Aaron is still technically practicing Catholicism so we don't want to become off offensive in any way shape or form of anything it's just that we have issue with the way that the case of Emanuela or Emanuela Orlandi was handled by the Vatican and officials just as we would if this was any other entity that was handling such a high profile case that has been hidden from the public and has so many different involvement so I we do sincerely apologize for anybody that we offended there was no offense intended in anything that we said we were very careful with a lot of things that we said we wanted to say a lot more but out of respect for those who are more dedicated to that pope specifically and the people who served underneath him with the vatican we held back but uh again we we truly are sorry for anybody that we offended it's just we wanted to make it clear that that was not targeted towards catholics Mm -hmm. it was targeted towards the vatican officials that were involved on record with the disappearance and kidnapping of emanuela orlandi well said that's why she's our pr rep (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not the PR rep, not the producer, not the host. Like the PR. How many? How many titles did we both hold? Morgan is good cop. I'm sometimes bad cop. <laughs> Just depends on the day. Depends on the day. But that's how we also handled oh, our shit. coaching. Um, but anyways, that, that's all that we wanted to say before we hopped into this episode. This one is a good one. We kind of took a break from the heavy. I don't know what you're covering though. I Highlines. personally took. Oh yeah, we both took a break from the heavy. Uh, involvement and a lot of things to just kind of do a very light light. episode and we needed a breather yeah because the Vatican really wrecked us to shreds last week (laughs) 
<laughs> the Vatican drug us, okay, y'all? It was rough. <laughs> it was really rough. So we're going to hopefully be back on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, thank God we made it. All right. Everybody, give a round of applause. A pause. Good God. Give it a round of applause. Hit them with it. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? So today I will be covering ley lines, like, you know, in the title, and we said it in the intro. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually got this request to do a deep dive into ley lines and portals and other supernatural energy marks. Funny story, when I wrote this intro, I had thought that Layla, the Bel Air house was um, a Patreon episode. Turns out it's public. <laughs> so I must have been drunk. So I'm really concerned with how the rest of this segment is going to go. But um, either way. So this is in reference to the Bel Air house. And in short, if you haven't listened to that episode, it falls on a ley line amongst lots and lots of other things resulting in a lot of supernatural activity. And I know you've heard me say ley lines in the past on other regular episodes, but I feel like I'm always just like throwing it out there. Yeah, rolling right over top of them. And I feel like we've gone into like a mini dive on them somewhere. Right. I I don't know if it was Patreon or public, but we have. Yeah, maybe that was what was Patreon. I don't know, guys. I'm really at a loss for words right now. (laughs) Um, Either way, we are going to get to portals at another date, hopefully actually with Susan. Yes. We're planning on that sometime soon, but all of our schedules have to line up together. And that's a very rare occurrence. Yes. So we will come back to that. But today we are going to get into the conspiracy, supernatural, energetic ley lines. So what is a ley line? Think of lays, and that's what I'm going to reference them as, as these like straight lines that cross or crisscross around Earth. And within these lines, we have very important locations in history. Now, these aren't latitude or longitude lines, but in a way, they are very similar. Mm -hmm. Ley lines are this idea or theory that ancient structures connect via this sort of like energy highway. And this idea came about in 1920 by a man named Alfred Watkins. Alfred is what's called an antiquarian or someone who studies antiquities, antiquities, like antiquities or things of the past. He released a book called The Old Straight Track, where in it he argued that from numerous historic structures in ancient societies, straight lines could be drawn connecting them all. And these lines actually represented old trade routes. But everyone at this time thought that his argument was kind of whack. This is in the 20s. And that his lines were developed on sites that were from different time periods. And that at the time, it was just impractical for people to actually travel in a straight line for a trade route. So that was his biggest argument when he first referenced ley lines. He was like, oh, this is just a big trade route. But people are like, dude, you can't go cut through mountains or seas or oceans in back then whenever that yeah. didn't happen like whenever the pyramids were built or when stonehenge right. well was first built. off like you can't be clearing an entire yeah. like mountain for people yeah. to climb over with trade yeah goods. it's especially back then it mm-hmm. would have just been impossible for people to use these lines as a trade route making archaeologists throw out his theory altogether until 1926 when people believed that alfred watkins could be on to something from his book a group or a club formed called the straight track club And this club began to search for more ley lines, proof that Alfred was not some just crazed man. And in response, Alfred fed into this, publishing a manual called the Ley Hunter's Manual in 1927. 
The members of this group were kind of pissed that Alfred's ideas of ley lines were rejected over and over again by what they would be called professionals. So they began to become advocates for him, sending in numerous letters to archaeologists and specifically the editor of the Antiquity Journal, OGS Crawford. And Crawford was very, like, annoyed and appalled. Just ignored all these requests because it was just over and over again. He's like, dude, like, I'm just a journalist. Like, stop sending me this guy's crazy ideas. Like, because the club was, like, bombarding him with letters. Like, check this out. Check this out. Something's up here. Right. And Crawford was like, no. So You're a bunch of conspiracy theorists. Yeah. So he began filing their letters, like, without even opening them under this section of this archive that he titled The Crankeries. Okay. He was also receiving numerous requests to publish something in the journal for Alfred's book, The Old Straight Track Book. And he was denying over and over again. And because of this, Alfred Watkins, like, hated the guy. Like, he Mm. was not... Not a fan. In 1932, Alfred released his last book called Archaic Tracks Around Cambridge. And then he passed just three years later on April 7th. But his club was still thriving, fighting for his beliefs, just begging for the slightest bit of research on this topic. But they were receiving no support from archaeologists or any type of scholar. Because of World War II, the group ended up becoming inactive and then they were formally disbanded in 1948. And after this, the idea of ley lines just kind of like faded away. Between the 40s and the 60s, archaeological ideas kind of took off in the UK, meaning more and more universities were understanding the importance of it. So before it just wasn't recognized, which is why his ideas were like thrown under the rug. Right. They're like already trying to validate themselves. Right. But in the 40s and 60s, it became very important and a lot of universities began adding new curricular or majors on the subject. And this kind of aided in the discipline of archaeology, meaning that it was no longer this like amateur field of bullshit. People weren't just like spewing random things out there. Mm -hmm. During the 1960s, it was the countercultural movement. And we know a lot about this. During this, the idea of sacred or mystical power really took off. And with that, Alfred Watkins' idea of ley lines came back into play. Except people weren't receiving it as trade routes, but more of these lines of power lines Mm. of energy and this is when ley lines took a shift into what we know them as today they became known as these paths of spiritual force or energy that allowed access to our ancient ancestors and then it took a huge twist because what also was popular during the countercultural movement or during this time period extraterrestrial Mm -hmm. ufo sightings people were believing in the et in 1961 a man named tony wedd published a book called skyways and landmarks in it he fought for watkins idea that ley lines were in fact real but that they served as ancient markers to guide extraterrestrial spacecrafts that were visiting Earth. Mm. And he made this conclusion between ley lines and ET because he compared Alfred Watkins' ideas to the ideas of a French ufologist named Amy Michael. Amy was a UFO specialist who also published writings in science and spirituality. And his biggest argument in his writings was a theory that he developed called orthoteny, this idea that alien spacecrafts traveled on specific lines. And these straight lines corresponded to where the majority of UFO sightings took place. Thus, orthoteny, I guess. I don't know where the name comes from. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe it's French for something. Maybe. Um, So Tony Wedd compared Alfred Watkins' ley lines to the ET traveled lines of Amy Michael And with that, he concluded that either spacecrafts were following this like 
prehistoric landmark for guidance or that the lays and the spacecraft were following this magnetic current that was flowing across the earth. Mm. Tony Wedd's ideas were then taken up by a writer named John Mitchell, Michelle Mitchell, I think it is, who was able to promote them to a wider audience through his book, The Flying Saucer Vision in 1967. A lot of books here. Yeah, lots of books. Yeah. Um, in this book, he discussed the ancient astronaut belief, which I think should be an entire segment in itself. Yeah. But this is a theory that suggests that intelligent beings visited Earth and made contact with humans during ancient time periods. And that these beings or extraterrestrial influence the development of what we have today, modern cultures, technologies, religions, and human biology. It also argues that most deities, if not all religions, are extraterrestrial in origin. Mm -hmm. And that advanced technologies brought to Earth by these ancient astronauts were interpreted as evidence of this divine godly status by early humans or seeing something come from the sky that to them is godly yeah and that's what created the religions that's the theory okay i'm not saying i believe in that i'm just saying that is the theory of course though this idea of ancient astronauts is considered pseudo pseudo archaeological mm -hmm. and unscientific and it's not taken seriously which we discussed a lot during our ancient egypt episode on patreon yeah for sure but back to the book the flying saucer vision in it, John Mitchell promoted the ancient astronaut belief, and he argued that aliens left humanity when it became too materialistic and technology-focused. Hmm. He then said that our materialism is driving to the point of self-destruction, and the only thing to prevent that is to reactivate those ancient places that fall on the ley lines, result, and it will result in contact with aliens again. Oh, how do we reactivate? That's interesting. It's a whole ass ordeal, I guess. Really? Like, you know how people say, like, the pyramids can be turned back on? Yeah. I think that's what he's referencing there. Probably. But, like, I, how do we do it? What do we do? How do uh, let us know. I mean, let CERN know. Maybe they can reactivate um, it. John then released another book two years later called The View Over Atlantis, where he interpreted ley lines as the Chinese concept of Lung Mei energy lines. And he believes that the advanced ancient society that once covered most of the earth, which would be what we know as Atlanteans or Lemurians mm -hmm. or whatever you want to believe in, they were the ones that established ley lines across the globe to harness this um, Chinese concept of Lung Mei energy, mm. which is very interesting. That's really interesting. In the mid-1970s, he published a case study laying out what he believed to be the ley lines in the West penwith district of cornwall i think that's in the uk and in 1962 another ley line hunting community was formed and this became a group of ufologists establishing the ley hunters club this group then went around the uk from his book of the district of cornwall identifying numerous ley lines in like what they were and in particular they focused on parish churches and i thought this was interesting so mm. i wanted to add it in here they assumed they did this because they assumed that these churches were almost always built on top of like pre-Christian sacred sites. That's really interesting. Yeah. So kind of so. like they had a spiritual and then now a religious significance, almost like reinforcing this theory or idea. Right. And with those locations, they were able to grow these ley lines from one point to another that's interesting through the 70s and the 80s there was an increase in publications of ley lines the idea of it and they created the idea of what we know them as today they are lays or geographical lines that go all over the globe from monument to monument to natural landform to ancient structures to 
parish churches with a spiritual significance underneath them, and they carry with them supernatural energy. When ley lines intersect with one another, this is said to be sections of like, uh, I guess like focus and like concentrated energy. Mm. And that would then create a vortex. And that's why like people that have gifts or are mediums, they're able to like kind of tap into that, which is, for example, the Bel Air house. Yep. People feel the most there because it is a vortex that falls within a ley line. And Mount Shasta is another and great Mount example. Mount Shasta is another great example. Yeah. And specifically at intersection points, you'll find the most sacred temples or monuments or natural formations in the world like Mount Shasta, Lake Titicaca and Stonehenge. Yeah. And if not most man-made objects on a ley line defied the laws of architecture at the time they were built. So like Stonehenge or the Great Pyramids of Giza, like they fall on these lines and there's just no explanation to how they got there, like physically by humans. Like there's always questions surrounding every single one. Like even if we talked about Snake uh, Mound over there in Ohio. I need to cover that. So if we were to assume that these structures had some sort of supernatural assistance in the building of them or extraterrestrial assistance, then we can assume that the ley lines have some sort of spiritual meaning behind them. Whether it's an ET highway or an energy highway, we don't know. Some people also call them Mother Earth's veins, like Earth's energy grid. Just like we have our own energy centers or chakras, Earth has hers too. And we've discussed the chakras of the Earth on our chakra episode. It's known that ancient cultures around the world had to have had some understanding of ley lines. In China, they were known as dragon lines. In South America, shamans will refer to them as spirit lines. In Australia, they are known as dream lines, where they believe these served as a map of the roads to like gateways around the world where you could access this ancient wisdom. These lines, whatever you want to call them, are able to take information and energy from high vibrational points and carry with them around the world. Most of the location on ley lines are actually natural formations like Mount Shasta, Mount Everest, Ayers Rock, for example, meaning Earth formed this spiritual energy map itself. Because whoever built Stonehenge couldn't have known about the existence of Machu Picchu or the Great Pyramids, Mm -hmm. therefore they couldn't have intentionally built it to intersect with those locations. It was the energy that either drew them to that location to build such things, or better yet, it was an ET harnessing that Earth's energy and creating those plots of what we now know as these ancient structures. Mm -hmm. Because our planet and our universe is a spiritually dope as fuck. Yeah. All in all, um, ley lines are like Earth's planetary grid or the ultimate geometric web of every important vortex, portal, or structure. Throughout history, all megalithic structures have been strategically built on these points. For example, all pyramids that we've discovered around the Earth, including the ones in Egypt or Latin America, South America, all end up on the same ley line. Stonehenge, Notre Dame, the United States Capitol building, the Bermuda Triangle. In fact, Nikola Tesla's lab was also on a ley line, and this lab was where the Tesla Towers stood. That had the intention to give free energy to mankind for eternity. Do you remember that? And then he was killed and lab was robbed. But what also is on the same exact ley line of Nikola Tesla's lab is where the internet was created, a.k.a. CERN. CERN. 
And I don't know if you guys remember this, but a couple years back, these obelisk or obelisk phenomena mm-hmm. occurred. And it's where these mini, like think of the US DC monument. monument. Yeah. It's where they all started popping up around the earth. And it was just like written off as like artists are like going around and putting them in random places and they would disappear. They were all popping up on ley line intersections, a.k.a. vortexes. And an example of this, these obelisks in real life, is the DC Monument, which is in line with Cleopatra's obelisk in New York City, which is in line with, you won't believe this one, but the obelisk that sits at the center of the Vatican City, St. Peter's Square. And they all look the exact same. The DC Monument, Cleopatra's Monument, and the Vatican Monument. That is... That is crazy. But going back to the religious and spiritual structures, such as the parishes that were being built on ley lines, there's evidence that proves the magnetic and gravitational pull in these areas is significantly stronger. Therefore, giving us the idea that people back then would go to these certain areas and connect with their higher selves, making these areas sacred for Mm -hmm. churches and spirituality spirituality in general. I wonder how many like massive religious structures specifically i'm thinking about like ancient mosques i wonder if those also fall on ley lines or intersections of them yeah but the fact that the bermuda triangle does i'm sold the the united states they said let's put dc right here right here right here it looks perfect and then let's just build this giant looking random straight up line and putting in the spider man five feet tall yeah yeah it's so weird no like numerology and spirituality has such a play and so many things that we don't know about right and we're just told to ignore and also another thing i said to morgan off mic was you know what's so crazy is if all these pyramids are found laying at intersections or on ley lines i wonder how often ley line maps and geometric ley line maps are used to discover them yeah like archaeologists study the ley lines go to these certain points and then boom we discovered a new pyramid 100 feet under the ground right and we used it because the way we found it was using ancient maps okay which one which maps yeah the ley line maps or um what yeah well i hope i answered your questions i'm sure a lot of you are like wait so what's a ley line even at the end of this because Honestly, I still kind of am because it's not answered. Yeah, it's not. It's not like a proven thing. Like it is something that you can kind of take away however you want to. Just know that there's natural formations that fall on them that we have strategically built things that fall on them to, in today's age. And then also in ancient, ancient times, times, we've strategically placed things, whether by the help of E.T. or us themselves. I don't know. Right. But and the ley lines aren't based off of these structures. They just happen to pass through every single one of the structures. Yeah. Because if we were to make a ley line map off of Earth's chakras, which the majority of them are, which are like the massive intersections of them. If you look up a map, it looks crazy as hell just to give you a forewarning about it. But you can see that Mount Shasta, Mount Everest, um, mm-hmm. the one in, oh God, uh, we covered all these in the Shasta episode, but either, well, Morgan did. Erase the fact that we knew anything about these pyramids and these massive and huge structures that have really no story behind them, but are just- Or sacred lakes, like Lake Titicaca. Yep, like, yes, sacred locations. Lake, you know? It, they pass right through them, or and there's a ton of massive intersections at plenty of them to prove that they truly are- somehow significant to the location that these pla- these places were put for right. some reason to earth's energy yeah which to mother earth to herself. mother earth 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 i said earth 19 times we've had to really edit my segment 
Anyway, guys, that's all I have for ley lines. I'm still confused myself, but I have a be- I have a much better understanding. Thank you for going through it. I know, nice. like it just it seems like a bunch of mumbo jumbo when you like right when Morgan has to research these things that we all just like know about, but like having to dig into it, it makes it sound crazy, crazy as fuck. It makes it sound insane whenever we're like giving the backstory on it. And I, th- I also find it really interesting that each one has come from like all this information from ley lines from 1922 when the guy dis- discovered what they were um, to now or all through books. Like there's no like by private, you know, yeah. authors like there was no like recognition of it by any sort of archaeologist. I'm sure it's all over ancient aliens now like the TV yeah. show. But back then it wasn't. And I'm surprised that it actually took that long because we know that indigenous people mm-hmm. would use create, these locations, use these locations to create their sacred sites. Right. Just like when you covered the Bel Air house right. about how that property was massively significant for the tribes that were around there originally. Right. You know what I want to bet is built on a ley line? Oak Island. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I, I would literally bet the first time I heard about a ley line was on Oak Island. I bet our studio is on a ley line. I bet our studio is on Oak Island. <laughs> I actually Corn. don't bet that. Corn on, on Oak, Oak Island. Island. Oh, I love Oak Island. Uh, it's very interesting. Well, Morgan, I really enjoyed it and I appreciate the hard work you put into it. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, Mor- Morgan had a, a rough one this time. You're up. Okay, let, let's get serious because today I'm covering Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. And I want to go ahead and let you guys know that, forewarning, I'm probably going to say Bonnie and Kai because if you're an OG or and or have listened to us from the beginning, I'm sorry, then you know who Bonnie, Bonnie and Kai, and Kai are. are. Bonnie and Kai are Morgan and I's alter egos from our one, two, three, third logo. So anyways, this is the true story of Bonnie and Clyde. And by true story, I mean heavily debated with a 100,000 different accounts. So I use the most reported on accounts to tell you their stories. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born in Texas on October 1st, 1910. She was the second of three children born to Charles Robert Parker and Emma Krause Parker. Her father, Charles, was a bricklayer that passed away when she was just four years old in 1914. After his death, her mother, Emma, moved her family back to her parents' home in Cement City, which was an industrial suburb of West Dallas, Texas. There, Emma began working as a seamstress, and the Parker children were put into schools. During Bonnie's second year of high school, she met a man named Roy Thornton. The two fell in love. Just six days before her 16th birthday in 1926, she and Roy dropped out of high school and got married. But Roy then became a dirty criminal, constantly getting arrested or was on the run, meaning he was never home with Bonnie, like ever. Yeah. So when he was arrested in 1929, she just left his ass. They never divorced, but they never spoke again. Fair. Like, boss-ass bitch move, my girl. Yeah. Bonnie moved back in with her mother and worked as a waitress in Dallas. She was extremely creative, strong, and a passionate woman. She loved photography, Hollywood films, and writing stories and poetry. However, she only had one diary that is known, for sure. She got it after leaving Roy, and the entire journal itself was just her talking about how impatient she felt being in Dallas. Like, it was boring, and she wanted a fast life, and she was constantly lonely, wanting to be more creative and have a better creative outlet. So she's literally you. Yeah, except for I don't turn into what Bonnie turned into, (laughs) hopefully. Yeah. 
But she also talked about her love for photography and getting her first camera. On January 5th, 1930, Bonnie was 19 years old and in between jobs after breaking her arm. She was staying with one of her friends. This is debated, but they might have been named Clarence Clay while recovering and searching for a new job when one of Clay's friends stopped by. 20-year-old Clyde Barrow. When Clyde arrived, Bonnie was in the kitchen making some hot chocolate and Clay introduced the two of them. They say it was love at first sight. The two immediately hit it off. Clyde Chestnut or Champion Barrow was born in Ellis County, Texas, just southeast of Dallas on March 24, 1909. He was the fifth of seven children belonging to Henry Barrow and Cumi Talitha Walker. The Barrow family struggled to make ends meet, and they were very poor. In the early 1920s, the family moved to Dallas and settled in the urban slum in West Dallas as a part of a wider migration pattern from rural areas into the city. Once there, the family had to live under their wagon until they could afford to buy a tent to live in. At the age of 17, Clyde was arrested for the very first time after running from a police officer for being questioned about a rental car that he never returned or was not returned on time. After getting out, he was then arrested again with his older brother, Buck, when they were found with stolen turkeys on Christmas Eve. Hmm. Okay. The Buck? Barrow... <laughs> Buck. Yeah. My dad? Bucky? Yeah. The Barrow brothers lived a life of crime to provide for themselves, robbing stores, stealing cars, cracking safes. It was only between 1927 and 1929 that there are actually any records of Clyde working a real job. But in November of 1929, Buck was shot and captured during a robbery in Denton, Texas, and sentenced to four years in the Texas State Prison. After meeting Bonnie in January of 1930, Clyde and Bonnie spent literally the next few weeks inseparable they would not leave each other's side but this was interrupted when Clyde was arrested and convicted of auto theft for which he was sentenced to East Ham Prison Farm in April of that year after just turning 21 years old Bonnie was crushed because the two knew that they were meant to be together they had this love like no one had ever experienced before and they just really wanted to spend the rest of their lives together but they didn't want to have to make it official and be married right she was so so upset so naturally she smuggles him a weapon oh, during okay. a visit soon after and he escapes from prison unfortunately he was caught just days later and sent back to east Ham, which is where he committed his first murder and trigger warning for this so he had been continually sexually assaulted by this one man. And he lured his attacker into the toilet room where he had hidden a pipe and beat this man to death, nearly decapitating him to stop him from attacking anybody else and wow. himself. Yeah. Because Clyde was not his only victim. There was actually another man that was serving life in prison and it was that man who took responsibility for the murder of that man, of oh, the attacker. Wow. And he said that he would do it because he was already going to spend the rest of his life behind bars and Clyde deserved to be free. Wow. Wow. Um, Take the rap for someone. Yeah. On March 8th, 1931, Buck, Clyde's older brother, had escaped from the Ferguson prison farm which he had been moved to and I do want to like stop for a second and mention this because I guess I knew it like in my head but I didn't really I've never addressed it out loud so prison back then was not like rehabilitation 
And even though that's what prison's supposed to be now, I have no idea. I've never been to prison, but I would assume it's not really right. all that effective. But either way, back then, like prison was to make you question God. It was to beat you down mentally, physically, emotionally. And they did this by forcing prisoners to perform labor on farms. So all these prisons in Texas are old farms. Prison farms. Yeah. yeah. So they would have to like be out in the sun for 12 hours a day with like no food, no water working in wow. the fields. So it was really horrendous hell, conditions yeah. yeah so either way Clyde's brother had escaped from Ferguson prison farm and he had been um he had <laughs> escaped by literally walking out the front door he said see you guys he walked wow. out the front door like no one said anything walks out the front door goes out the gate gets in a guard's car hot wires it drives off no one even blinks an eye. No. And he drove all the way to his parents' house where his wife, Blanche, was waiting. But on Christmas Day, Blanche and his mother convinced him to turn himself in and complete his sentence, which he did at Huntsville Penitentiary. Clyde continued to serve his time with one of his punishments for escaping being the intense hard labor, like having to literally be out there 10 times what he was before. Yeah. So um, he cut off two of his toes. Holy shit. <laughs> causing him to limp for the rest of his life to get out of this work. But come to find out, his mother had been petitioning for his release without his knowing, and he was released six days later. So oh he did God. that for nothing. Yeah. At least his last six days were in the infirmary. Yeah. <laughs> Clyde was paroled, but after his release, everything changed about him. He used to be this... They compared it as to like a schoolboy attitude, like very naive and fun and kind and really like having a purpose for the reason that he would commit crimes in terms of like not wanting to kill anybody, but just being like, I want to give back. And the people who don't have money, the poor, are not given the opportunity to do this to being just a hostile, harsh man. He was no longer kind. He was no longer respectable with like meaning behind what he was doing he was instead bitter and angry at the world but he was overjoyed to be reunited with bonnie and the two embarked on their life of crime as partners in it with their closest friends one being a man named ralph Foltz, who was clyde's friend from prison in february of 1932 fresh out of prison clyde bonnie and ralph began robbing businesses stores and gas stations to collect enough money and weapons to raid east ham prison which was his main goal that's a huge heist right or raid whatever yeah. you want to call it april 19th while attempting to rob a hardware store of their guns in kaufman texas bonnie and ralph were captured by police Clyde, acting as the getaway driver, was waiting in the car and fled once he saw that the two were cuffed outside. Bonnie was sentenced to only a few months in the Kaufman County Jail after the grand jury failed to indict her. However, Ralph, Ralph was tried and convicted and sentenced to time in prison. While in Kaufman County Prison, or I'm sorry, jail, Bonnie wrote books of poetry. And when she was released, it took her a few weeks to track down Clyde because her bf was on the run once again on april 30th so before she was released clyde was acting once again as a getaway driver for a robbery in hillsboro when his partner shot and killed the store owner and the man's wife who was shot and killed witnessed the entire robbery 
ID'd Clyde's photo as the shooter, despite the fact he had never even gone inside. Because of this, he was indicted and wanted for murder. Then, it's pretty unlucky. Right. On August 5th, Clyde and two of his friends, Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer, were drinking moonshine while at a country dance hall in Oklahoma when a sheriff and a deputy approached them in the parking lot. The three men knew that they were about to be arrested because this is prohibition. So you can't have alcohol. So instead of just hiding it, they opened fired on these officers before like they even got halfway across the parking lot and killed one and severely injured the other. Just reckless. Right. And it was thought that the same crew was also responsible for the death of another store owner in Sherman, Texas during a robbery. However, this is debated if it even had anything to do with Clyde. And I just want to preface this with I think a lot of people forget that Bonnie and Clyde were literally serial killers. Right. And like... they're just romanticized in this different type of way which we'll see why that happened so it's just kind of like different to think about them because they're so infamous for robberies but not for murder yeah do you remember the movies rush hour yeah there was one movie where they like are at this like jazz club i think like a nightclub there's like a performance of bonnie and clyde Mm -hmm. and it's like kind of like a burlesque yeah nightclub and that's all i can think about the song (laughs) yeah Anyway. Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde, they're a really interesting topic, and I didn't even know half the shit that I know now before researching them. Yeah. Either way, it was sometime before or after these two instances that Bonnie and Clyde were officially reunited. The two spent Christmas Eve together that year in Dallas with a family friend of Clyde's 16-year-old W.D. Jones. That night, the three of them left Dallas and stopped in Temple, Texas, Christmas morning, where they murdered a young man in the process of stealing his car just escalating more and more and more yeah especially when they're together yes by january 6 1933 the group of three had traveled to tarrant county and police had set up this undercover sting to try and capture another set of criminals and somehow bonnie clyde and wd had accidentally walked into this trap and they had to escape During this process of fleeing, Clyde shot and killed one of the deputies, and they fled to Joplin, Missouri, where they set up a temporary hideout on Oak Ridge Drive. That's weird. On March, I know, right? On March 22nd, Buck was released from prison and picked up by his wife, Blanche. The two immediately drove straight to Joplin to join his brother and the group. Then they all called themselves the Barrow Gang. Now, when Buck and Blanche initially got there, their entire purpose for going was to actually try and talk Clyde into surrendering to law enforcement and turning himself in to finish his sentence. But before they knew it, they were drunk as hell, setting up card games and playing music in celebration of their reunion. And this went on for days. Now, the neighborhood that they were in was extremely quiet, and it was supposed to be their little hideout. So naturally, these drunken card night game situations were catching the attention of the neighbors. And either while cleaning or in a family, or I'm sorry, friendly fire celebration type of accident, Clyde's bar fired. And it's so loud i mean again this is the 30s too a firearm in the 30s zooming so loud that either one of or many of the neighbors who wouldn't dare go near this hideout because they're i mean you you hear screaming drinking card games loud music and now gunshots you're not going to go near that so they called the joplin police department 
and they just really wanted them to go and just make this gang chill the fuck out. But when police got this call, they knew that alcohol was likely involved and that this was going to be some sort of criminal activity. So in all of the prohibition glory, the JPD devised a plan. They organized a five-man task formation with two cars to work the case of this party that lasted days. And on April 13th, 1933, the JPD team arrived on Oak Ridge Drive and surrounded the house. Clyde, Buck, and W.D. opened fire on the officers, killing a detective and fatally wounding a constable. Buck was grazed with a bullet. Clyde's suit coat button actually saved him from getting shot in the heart. I was going to say, so many shootouts, and these guys are still alive. Literally. And it bounced off of his coat jacket and went back. Wow. Yeah, like really lucky. Strong button. And then WD was shot, but the bullet went right through his shoulder without any serious injuries. Bonnie then covered them by repeatedly firing with the bar while the others gathered what they needed, such as their weapons, to escape. Bonnie's shots forced the team's sergeant to take cover behind the super large oak tree. So then she begins firing through the tree, which forced huge splinters out the backside of it and into the sergeant's face. Oh, my God. Bonnie then jumped into the car with the others and they chased Blanche down the street because her dog Snowball had ran away during all this commotion and um, ran down the street, but she couldn't catch up to Snowball. Snowball was on gone. Yeah, so Snowball she, was like, I'm out of this. Yeah, thing. Snowball was like, honest to God, what did I get myself into? Yeah. And he dipped out, and they all jumped in the car and drove off. So, yet again, they escaped fleeing Joplin. However, because of the rush, they left most of their possessions behind, but specifically a large arsenal of weapons buck's parole papers that were oh, signed God. three days before with his name i'm sorry all three weeks it. yeah three weeks before and then bonnie's camera with several rolls of undeveloped film and her handwritten poems and stories crazy enough though it was these last two items the photos and the book of the stories and poems that made this duo immortalized and gave them the fame that we still feel today. Joplin PD developed all of the film at the Joplin Globe paper and found thousands of photos of Bonnie, Clyde, and WD posing with weapons. And some of these pictures, they're like pointing the weapons directly at each other. Oh, I have to look them up. Bonnie loved Hollywood, writing poems and stories and taking photos as if they were film strips depicting the tales that she would write. She was an artist and they had found her art. So the Globe published these poems and some of the photos in the news agency, one of which had a photo of Bonnie with a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand and her foot's like propped up on the bumper of the car. And these were literally front page headliners across all of America. Like every single newspaper was this photo of Bonnie and her poems. I believe it. Bonnie's stories and poems were talking about how Uncle Sam did not give a damn about the poor, how those that had nothing were basically trapped and crime was the only way that they could save themselves. So essentially, fuck the government, fuck the norms, fuck society, and just make your life what you want it to be, no matter if it is illegal or not. People were obsessed. I mean, she's straight up holding a gun to his stomach. Literally. Literally, Morgan. People were obsessed with these writings and the stories and the message behind all of it because they 
this was something that hadn't been spoken on and it they idolized this power criminal couple women were empowered by bonnie's cigar pistol photo they were like fuck yeah like she looks so badass in this they were like the fictional criminals that were written about in novels had come to life and were existing in current time right people romanticized their lifestyles their love and their crime bonnie clyde wd Buck and Blanche lived the next three months on the run. Everyone knew who they were now because they were famous, but that didn't stop them from committing their typical crimes. They traveled between Texas and Minnesota, and in May they were in Lucerne or Lucerne, Indiana, where they attempted to rob a bank but were ran off in the midst of prepping for it. And then they robbed another bank in Minnesota. It's like Okabina. Minnesota, not long after. Also, they kidnapped two individuals, Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone in Ruston, Louisiana, while stealing their car. But this was something that they had done many times before between 1932 and 1934. And this included also kidnapping police officers. Yeah. Just insane. They would drive (laughs) hours away with their kidnapped victims and drop them off with food, money, new clothes, and bus fare so they could get home safely. Okay. All right. Every single one of these victims would run straight to the newspapers and tell their stories because it was like, not an honor, but like... I got abducted by Bonnie and Yeah, like something like that. Like People wanted to go be a part of the headlines for it. But with this and their notoriety, it... Like Morgan said, it's escalating. They became more and more violent because they were getting desperate. And they were getting away with it and they were getting fame. Yeah. And hotels and restaurants became less secure for them to go to, despite the fact that there wasn't like social media that everybody can know their face. But by some odd happening, they made the headlines of every single newspaper in America. That was like rare as hell. That didn't happen. So they could not escape their own image. They couldn't go eat normal places. They couldn't sleep normal places. So they had to sleep in their cars at campsites and cook over bonfires in the woods. But this close proximity of them not being able to have their own space and living out of their car really caused a lot of drama with the gang itself in late april clyde and wd actually stole the group's car and dipped leaving the others behind until june when they came back on june 8th and uh picked them up but on june yeah actually we're out yeah i I mean like you left me for over a month yeah clyde what the hell and this kid is just a kid yeah they're young they're really young on june 10th the crew got into a really awful accident when a bridge that was under construction was not properly blocked off. So they drove off of this bridge and into a ravine outside of Wellington, Texas. There was this fire that left Bonnie with third-degree burns on her right leg, so severe that it caused her muscles to contract, and she couldn't straighten her leg. And it was so bad that you could see bone. Oh, my God. It was bad. Either way, Clyde and all of them escaped by him carrying her or supporting her while they walked miles until they found this uh, farming family that offered them help. But the family helped them and then turned them into the Collinsworth County Sheriff's Office. So when the sheriff arrived, along with the city marshal, they kidnapped them. Again, stole their car. Kidnapped the police? Yeah, the city marshal and the sheriff of the town 
kidnapped the two of them, drove the two men to Eric, Oklahoma, dropped them off, gave them new clothes, food, water, and handcuffed them to a barbed wire fence on the side of a road so someone would find them. <laughs> it's just crazy. It dude. is crazy. They traveled all the way to a tourist court in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they hid out and took care of Bonnie's leg, which was in dire condition. In Alma, Arkansas, Buck and WD robbed a bank and then murdered the town's marshal to get money in order to treat Bonnie's wounds. But because of this high profile crime and murder they committed, obviously they're forced to flee the town once again. So the group ended up going to Red Crown Tourist Court below Platte City, Missouri. Platte, Platte Plateau? City, Missouri. No, it's like P-L-A-T-T-E. Platte. Platte. I don't know. Platte. Platte City, Missouri in July of 1933. And they rented these two brick cabins that were connected by garages. This location was perfect for the crew. They had their own little hideout all together that was connected. Everyone had a bed and a room so they could have their own space. And there was this like awesome popular tavern restaurant right behind them called the Red Crown Tavern. But the tavern's regulars were all Missouri Highway Patrolmen. Oh my God. And if we know anything about the Barrow Gang so far, no matter how low they laid, chaos and attention just followed them wherever they, were the they went. They were. They were. And it's like they didn't even try to hide it. So the owner of the cabins that rented this to them was this man named Neil Hauser. And when Blanche checked into the cabins, she paid with all coins, which was a red flag. And then she rented the two cabins for only three guests. Yep, he clearly saw five guests piling out of the car. But what caught his eye about the car was the way that they parked it. At the time, it was not custom to back into parking spots. In fact, it was extremely hard in the cars that they had. Therefore, it was called gangster style parking. I do that every day then. You're a gangster. Since it proved to be a quick getaway and give you an easy escape method. And hide your plates. Yeah. At they the, had plates then. I don't know if they had plates. I don't know. Either. I would assume they would. Yeah, I don't know when the I guess. were a thing. At the tavern, the very first night that they stayed there, Blanche ordered five meals and five beers to go. Again, pain and only coins. So Neil knew he needed to keep an eye on this crew. Well, the next morning, so the second morning that they're there, um, Neil is like walking around opening up the court and he realizes that newspapers have been taped over every single window that the in the cabin that they oh, had rented. Shit. And he mentioned this to one of the tavern regulars who happened to be Captain William Baxter of the Highway Patrol. But Neil wasn't the only one who had a bad feeling about this group. On day two or three, W.D. and Clyde drove into town to go to a pharmacy where they bought bandages, cheese, crackers, and wound cleaning supplies for Bonnie's leg. And the pharmacist recognized them, calling the sheriff, who was Holt Coffee. And they put their cabin under surveillance because Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas law enforcement had placed a bolo for a group matching their description and possibly needing wound cleaning supplies. Oh, How shit. specific, okay? So Sheriff Coffey and Captain Baxter began working together, calling in backup from Kansas City with an armored car. On the night of July 7th at 11 p.m., the task force approached the cabin armed and as expected, the crew... Shootout. Yep, massive shootout. The Barrow Gang was able to escape by targeting the armored car, damaging it to where it could not run, and they got out. 
but Buck had been struck by a bullet in the forehead, breaking his forehead bone so badly that they could see his injured brain. Oh, my God. And Blanche was behind a window when this shootout occurred, and a bullet struck the glass, and it threw glass fragments into both of her eyes, nearly blinding her. The group made their way to an abandoned amusement park called Dexfield Park in Dexter, Iowa, where they camped out for the night on July 24th. Buck was sometimes conscious. He would alive. He would come alive. What? Yeah, he would come like to consciousness. He would eat. He would talk, but he was severely injured and losing lots of blood. So he was in and out. I guess I forget bullets and guns aren't like they were today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was really they, they were like he would just like come to for a bit, speak and eat normally. And his brain would just be and out then go back out and then go back to sleep. Well, they were pretty positive that he wasn't going to make it through the night because the amount of blood that he was losing plus infection that was going to happen. So much convinced that Clyde and WD actually dug him a grave at the amusement park. Wow. Locals noticed the group and called police. Because of the group's fame, 100 locals surrounded this area. Why? To see what happened with police because it was so infamous of them. It basically made it to where they couldn't get in their car. They couldn't get all of their weapons. So they were forced to escape on foot. Bonnie was being held by Clyde because her injured leg. WD's on his own. But Buck was so injured he couldn't get away and Blanche didn't want to leave him. So they basically surrendered to police, but Buck had been shot in the back while trying to get his footing. Both were arrested and Buck was rushed to the hospital. And five days after intense surgery and critical care, he passed away of his injuries and pneumonia at King Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. Bonnie, Clyde, and WD stole cars and made their way through Colorado, Minnesota, Illinois, and Mississippi, continuing all of their armed robberies to restock on weapons and money. In early September of 1933, they decided to visit their families in Texas, which was a big risk, but they hadn't seen their families in so long, and Bonnie was still very injured. Bonnie and Clyde went to Dallas, and WD went to Houston, where his family had moved, and in Houston, WD was caught and arrested on November 16th. Bonnie and Clyde's families continued to take care of Bonnie's injuries, while Clyde committed several robberies to just have enough money to properly treat her medical needs. On November 22nd, they were going to meet with some more family in Sowers, Texas. And I believe this is one of Clyde's brothers or sisters that they were going to visit. But as they were approaching, Clyde, who was driving, felt that this was a trap. So to test it, he drove straight past his family's car where they were supposed to be meeting. And sure enough, he was right. Dallas Sheriff Smoot Schmid, very interesting name. Very. With two other deputies stood up from behind the family's car and began firing at Bonnie and Clyde's car. One bullet passed through Bonnie and Clyde's car and shot Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow in the legs. And they continued driving. They were able to escape. Six days later, a warrant for their arrest, both of theirs, was delivered and the two were indicted. But Bonnie and Clyde continued on the run and Clyde had a plan that he had been working on for years. What started all of this, which was the East Ham raid. Forgot about that. And he was ready to 
go forward there. with us. He was like, fuck it. We're, we're at ready. the end. We got to go. But before we go the on. The time is now. And the time is now because clearly we're ending. We're about to end right. this. We have bullet holes all through us. And right. She came and straightened her leg. Out. Right. Like it's not going good. My brother died. We just got to go forward with this. So before we go into all of this, we need to explain that there are more members of the Barrow gang than just the five main ones that we have talked about this entire time. There were actually nine known members. The other four were those that committed several strings of robberies and other crimes with Bonnie and Clyde. And as of January 1934, the members of this group were Henry Methven, who was serving a 10-year prison sentence in East Ham Prison and was close friends with Clyde's really close friend, Raymond Hamilton. Raymond had grown up with Clyde and all of his siblings, and I actually mentioned him earlier when I was talking about the country dance hall in Oklahoma where they had the moonshine and shot the deputy. He was the one that was with him and shot at the deputy, and he had been arrested for this murder months prior and sentenced to life in prison in East Ham, where he met Henry and the two became best friends. The third member of the four that we haven't mentioned yet is Joe Palmer. And really, there's not much stuff about him. All we know is that he's listed as one. I don't know when he, he came just in. He picked up, carried in. Yeah. All messed I, around a little and then... He yeah. might have been friends with Hamilton and Methvin in yeah. prison, and that's how he got involved in this. But the last one is Ralph Foltz, who we talked about really early on. He was the one that committed the first real robbery with Clyde. Now, this plan that Clyde had was to get revenge on the Texas Department of Corrections, and he, along with many others who he had been in prison with, had been orchestrating this breakout for years at this point, with the main goal to get Raymond Hamilton out and humiliate the state of Texas. On on January 16th, 1934, Bonnie, Clyde, and a few other ex-convents drove to Huntsville, Texas, just outside of the East Ham State Prison Farm and parked on a side road. Clyde and a few of these other men cut the fence and made their way to the cells, where Joe Palmer, Raymond Hamilton, and Henry Methvin were waiting with weapons that they had been smuggled in preparation for this event. Clyde and his men began opening fire on the guards with Hamilton, Parker, and Methvin rushing out to cover them and basically surprise ambushing all of the backup guards and all the guards because they were getting shot at from all sides, oh my God. which they were they absolutely shootouts, not bro. expecting. Right. Like what an outlaw Texas case for me to be covering. It just seems like so romanticized too by like Western films and yeah, stuff like sure. that. It's really, it's really crazy to actually like hear a case like it because it's true. They really love shootouts. Yeah. Either way, they rushed out to the side road after they got the clear to escape and got rid of the guards that were shooting at them. And Bonnie, still parked and waiting in the car, had it rolling and ready when they jumped in the back seat. And they fled after killing just one guard and severely injuring many, many others. A manhunt for Bonnie and Clyde ensued with local, state, and federal law enforcement officers searching for the two. I mean, it's about time. I mean, finally. I'm glad that someone got the memo. I mean, literally. This was. Feds, what are you doing? (laughs) But this was not to like lock them up and put them in prison because clearly they could escape. They had the means and the ability to get out. It was to kill the two. Oh, shit. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted Captain Frank Hammer, who was a retired Texas Ranger, asking for his help in this massive case. He agreed and was given the task of taking down the Barrow Gang. Captain Hammer was feared but extremely admired in all of Texas for his ability to take down some of Texas' most dangerous criminals and outlaws. Starting on February 10th, Hammer lived out of his car. 
quietly following Bonnie and Clyde wherever they went without a trace, without intervening, just never being seen, secretly following them. He needed to study their actions, their routines, how they reacted to situations to know how and when to take the best shot. On Easter Sunday, April 1st, 1934, outside of Grapevine, Texas on Route 114, two highway patrol officers were pulled over on their motorcycles helping a broken down car when the Barrow Gang drove past and opened fire, killing both officers. Texas, I mean, for what? For why? Truly, for why? They didn't even steal anything. Right. It was just a drive-by. Makes no sense. Texas Governor Ma Ferguson and Highway Patrol boss LG Fares put a reward for $1,500 in 1934, $1,500 for the, quote, dead bodies of the grapevine slayers, Bonnie and Clyde. The public was now just as angry at the gang as law enforcement was. I mean, finally. And joined in on tracking them down. Especially five days later when Henry and Clyde killed Constable William Cal Campbell in Commerce, Oklahoma. They had also kidnapped police chief Percy Boyd, gave him money, clean clothes, and dropped him off just over the Kansas state line. The public hate for Bonnie and Clyde went through the roof at this point, despite their wide popularity. The Dallas Journal ran cartoon after cartoon, one specifically that had an empty electric chair that had a sign saying reserved for Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. By May, Clyde had 16 warrants for his arrest between four different states, and the group decided that Henry's parents' home in Shreveport, Louisiana, would be the best meetup spot if they got separated because it was away from everybody else's family's home and Texas. So they decided it was time to go make their yearly visits to their families, so they left Henry behind in Louisiana with his mama. Meanwhile, the whole time, Captain Hammer has been secretly following the group. Right. And somehow, when Henry separated from the group, decided to persuade him to turn on the Barrow Gang, specifically Bonnie and Clyde, and work with police. In the morning of May 23rd, 1934, Hammer and his crew hid behind bushes on Louisiana State Highway 154 South, waiting for Bonnie and Clyde to show up for their planned visit to Henry's home in Shreveport, Louisiana. Henry had parked his car on the side of the road at the direction of Hammer and his team in hopes that Clyde would stop and see what he was up to, which is exactly what happened. At 9.15 approximately a.m., Clyde driving a Ford V8 with Bonnie in the passenger seat came barreling down the road at high speeds, slowing down when they passed Henry's car when Hammer and his team opened fire. Clyde was shot instantly in the head and killed. Bonnie then began screaming because the love of her life was just shot and killed in front of her when the officers, the team of six, approximately fired 130 rounds into the car until Bonnie died. Clyde Barrow was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Texas beside his brother Marvin on May 25th at sunset. Bonnie Parker was buried in Fish Trap Cemetery on May 26th but later moved to Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas. Despite the fact that the couple wished in their wills to be buried side by side together, which is still actually being campaigned to this day because it was Bonnie's mother that wouldn't allow it. And her family, like, yeah, all of her, like, uh, family went on and they still, like, want her to be moved. So that's really interesting. But that is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. What the fuck? I didn't know any of that. that. It's interesting to me that they were at first kind of romanticized Mm -hmm. and then it was like 
hatred from the public and yeah. like they want the public wanted them dead and now we're back to romanticizing them yeah because it, it, that typically happens with it, and it's completely gone over like no one talks about the fact that they were literally serial killers right like and serial kidnappers and everything beyond the right. shootout, serial shootouters serial <laughs> not the serial shootouters Cereal. not the serial shitouters <laughs> no i mean like they're like reckless and they were escalating Crazy. and they were like i guess what's interesting also is that if they were strategic and like calculated they probably would have been caught way before them being like careless chaotic yeah reckless and just like no one you can't touch us so yeah no, no one did because they had that and like, also like a lot of people were on their side because in the point of this it there's prohibition the great depression there's um what was it called it was called it's an era in time where basically it was public enemy public enemy era because the government was literally motherfucking right everyone but specifically those who didn't have money like right. middle and lower class you were thrown to the curb so truly bonnie and clyde in the beginning were, were kind of like this like vigilante yeah. justice type of situation representing that there needed to be change within the system and that the poor deserved equal opportunity and then it quickly turned into Holy we're serial killers. God, we can't get this under control. Yeah. You know, so. That's crazy. It's crazy. I, I didn't even know half of their story. I feel like if I, I've seen plenty of like shows and stuff know, that mention me them. Too. But it's always just like this romanticized. Meanwhile, we're like, we're Bonnie and Kai. Well, we're Bonnie and Kai, not mm. Bonnie and Clyde. I know, but we may have named our alter egos after the duo. <laughs> I know. And I didn't know how to We had shit. no idea. And I'm taking it all back now. Uneducated. Uneducated Ladies. right here. Dumb. Two idiots with a mic. Oh, shit. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed Thank this episode. It's We needed a break from the harsh shit, and we went into a whole different thing that we haven't ever done before. And again, I apologize about the late lines. All right. See you guys on Friday. <laughs> See you guys on Friday. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.